Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, Lord. Thank you now, Father God, for the time where we are able to get into your word, Lord, and to see what you would have for us this morning, Heavenly Father. Lord, I pray that you help us to cast aside, leave all the distractions away, Heavenly Father, that we just focus right now on you, on your word, and what you would have for us this morning, Heavenly Father. Prepare the soils of our hearts, minds, and soul, Heavenly Father, please. Remove rigidity, remove stubbornness, remove hurt, remove deceit, remove everything, Heavenly Father, that would be in the way this morning of just innocently hearing your word and allowing your conviction, allowing your spirit to do what is needed in this place that we're out of our, the way, our intellect is out of the way, and we just say, Abba, Father, teach me, please. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So last week, we finished one of the longest New Testament chapters with John 6, his time, our time. And we saw within that last week the inability of the religious leaders and those around at that time to accept the words of Jesus. In that, we saw how their inability to accept his word kept them so focused on the temporal. They were so focused on the immediate, the physical, and they weren't able to look towards the eternal. All the while, we saw Jesus relentlessly trying to point them to think of the eternal. Think of what's ahead. Think of what's truly important. And as they stayed stuck on that, they were reminded they can't be drawn in because their hearts are rejecting. They're unable to go there. And the chapter overall, when we look at John 6, it really gave us that big question to look at our motives of following Jesus. Because we did a dive on the motives and on their hearts. And it was also a call for us as a body of believers to search our hearts. To say, Lord, search my heart. And if we look at the Psalms and where we are for the Wednesday night Psalm crew, that theme is also coming up. Lord, search my heart. And I remind us yet again, prayerfully discern the scripture the Lord is putting in front of you in every season of your life. There's no coincidences with our faithful God. Whatever you're reading in your devotional time, whatever we're doing on Wednesday, on Sunday, what you're doing in community group, go before the Lord with all those scriptures and say, Father, what wilt thou have me do? What are you teaching me? What are you refining? What are you working within me? In the passage that we looked at last week, we saw Jesus focusing on the inward heart of man. And we saw that that passage, that chapter ended with Judas's betrayal being mentioned. Reminding us the outward isn't enough. Again, we questioned our motives. We have to look and question ourselves. Are you going through the motions or are you genuine? Do you take God at his word or do you struggle to accept? So the charge from last week, charge check-in. One, did you prayerfully ponder if you have any plan Bs in your life? Any things that... You're not just thinking Jesus alone. Did you think about, can you really fully accept his sovereignty? Or do you also want to go away? Two, do you know the facts or do you believe? And I think that's a hefty one as I look at our culture more and more and all of the different things that you can find about the Bible and the word of God and Jesus Do you know the facts? Are you a fact getter? I know all of these facts. It's in my head. I'm really intellectual, but my heart's not on fire for the Lord. I can be intellectual. I can be academic, but my heart is empty. I have no grace for the God of people, but I'm justified in my self-righteous intellectual abilities. Is it facts or is it belief? Because if it's just facts, 
If it starts with just facts and it stays just facts, we looked at what one may hear. Depart from me, I never knew you. It can't just be facts. It needs to be in our heart. Three, did you do the check a little during the week? Were you a Peter? Where else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. Or was there any festering Judas at any moments in this last week? It's not a fun thing to think about, but we've got to go there because we want to allow the Lord to refine us. As you go through these charges week after week and as you prayerfully ponder what's put before you, take it to Jesus, brothers and sisters. Seek him more. Delve into those charges. Delve into prayerfully pondering, how do I make this word action? How do I do this? Because too much and too much in our culture, it's all here. And we sound really, really good. Good job. You get a gold star. But you're not doing anything with the word of God. We've got to be doers with the word. We've got to embrace conviction. We've got to allow his refining. And we have to remember all he does is for an eternal purpose. Don't forget that. It's an eternal purpose. We're with him forever and ever and ever. Now, today we're going to be in John chapter 7, the first 13 verses, and the title of today's message is Perspectives on Christ. Now, about six months of time has passed between John chapter 6 and John uh, 7. So what takes place in between, you might wonder, if you look at Mark 6 through 9 and Luke 10 to 12, 12, that gives you a good snapshot of the things that take place. What takes place in that time? The feeding of the 4,000, another multitude, more interactions and questions with the Pharisees. The boiling water is really getting, the heat's getting turned up higher because they're now questioning Jesus and they question his disciples. Why are they doing this? Why are they washing in this way? What are they doing? A boy is healed. Jesus predicts his resurrection and his death. The transfiguration takes place. Several parables are given by our king. He gives the parable of the lost sheep. He gives the parable of how to hold a sinning brother accountable. And that one is one I think we all in our culture could go back to because we've lost with screens how to talk to one another. We're all avid writers, but we forgot how to talk. We've got to remember how to do that. We see the good Samaritan. We see the model on how to pray. Not the model of a prayer to say over and over again. The model of how to pray. We see reminders on keeping the word of God. In that six-month time period, Jesus gives the picture of the body as a lamp. All different things pointing to the eternal purposes. Now, I want to look at one portion before we delve into our text today. Turn to Luke chapter 12. Because in the context of where we are in John 7... Chronologically, it's interesting to think of this coming before where we're going. So Luke 12, verse 4. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. In that portion, he's saying, don't fear persecution. And it's important because when persecution's feared, what we end up having is fear-filled faith. 
And that's something we're going to see in the portion of Scripture today because our fear goes towards man rather than God. When he's saying this, he knows all except John would die as martyrs for him. Opposition is rising at this time, and he's saying stand through persecution. Whenever we read about persecution, it should also have a little buzzer in our head, pray for the persecuted church. Pray for the people around the world that are persecuted for their faith. God never forgets his people. And a vivid imagery is given with the hairs on your head. Fun fact, redheads have about 90,000 hairs in their head. Uh, If you have dark hair, you've got about 120,000. Blondes have about 145,000, right? So if you think about that number of just about how much hair is on the head of folks, he knows every single one. He knows, she just patted his bald head, I'm sorry, that was too much for me. But he knows every single hair on the head. It reminds us that that imagery, he knows all of the important things about us. Then in verse 8 of this, uh, Luke 12, Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Because that's settled rejection of God's truth. That is eternal rejection of the truth. And there are eternal consequences. Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And we see in Acts the faithfulness of that. But it's an interesting thing to look at as we go to John 7. And we're going to be looking at different perspectives on Christ today. And we're going to be seeing those who do believe he's good, he's doing good, but they don't say anything. They don't speak up because there's fear of the leaders. And to look at this being told to them beforehand, don't fear that. Fear God. Fear God alone. Now, the context of this, we're in Jerusalem and we're in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles. Keep that in mind. And we're looking the six months, so the map's up right now. We can see... He's in the area of Galilee. That's where he's been. For us in John 6, the last place we were at was Capernaum, and he's going to travel down to Jerusalem. Everyone's traveling down for the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, we've learned with the Samaritan woman, Samaria is going to be avoided. Now, chapter 7 and 8 bring us to a bit of a bubbling climax in the Gospel of John because the conflict with Jesus and the Jewish leaders, as I mentioned, it's going up, it's rising Because he's really saying he is Messiah who has come. Now as you'll see in our text, the Feast of Tabernacles is taking place. We'll go more on that later. But in the verses we're going to look at today, I want you to look for four perspectives on Christ. One, familiar unbelief. We're going to see familiar unbelief. We're going to see controlling rejection. We're going to see fear-filled faith. And we're going to see faithless rejection. And as we look at these different perspectives on Christ in this passage, these 13 verses, we're going to realize they're quite timeless. They're quite applicable to our culture today. And it also will remind us the only way for a perspective on Christ to be changed is surrendered belief in him unto eternal faith. Because eternal faith lives with an eternal perspective, trusting 
in and on Christ alone. So let's stand and read John chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, He is good. Others said, No, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you for your word, Heavenly Father. Lord, I pray that as we look at this encounter, you would fill me with your Holy Spirit to give the words that are needed for your people, Heavenly Father. I pray that you would prepare their hearts, minds, and souls, and that we would be able to glean wisdom from you, Lord God, from these verses, Lord. Wisdom that acts as that double-edged sword, Heavenly Father, that penetrates and pierces us, Lord, and gives us eyes to see the world with the mind of Christ. Thank you, Heavenly Father. We love you, we worship you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. So the first verse, after these things, so we filled in already that six-month time gap that takes place. Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, something important to point out right at the beginning, Jesus isn't not going because he's scared. This isn't a moment where Jesus is worried or he doesn't have enough courage. If we remember in John 2, verse 4, when we looked in the beginning of this way back when, a few months ago, Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And when we looked at that, we talked about the fact that Jesus is rested in one very important thing. God's perfect timing. He's not going to go ahead. He's not going to rush. He knows everything that needs to take place, but he's resting in God's timing. And the time of the arrest, the time of the crucifixion, it's not yet. It's not time for that to go. And it should always make us wonder, how do you do discerning, trusting, waiting on his timing? Because that can be a challenge. That can be difficult. But our Savior gives us such a beautiful picture of always resting on his perfect timing. Now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. So the Feast of Tabernacles is at hand. We're going to get a chart of the different Jewish feasts up. So that's um, the different Jewish feasts. I put it in a chart so everybody could see that. Now if we look really quick, just show the calendars. That's the calendar setup. So when we look at the Months in the middle, those are what we're used to. Then on the outside, that's the Jewish calendar based on the lunar calendar that has the different months. So you can just kind of get an idea where the feasts line up with the calendar that we're used to, right? Now, if we go back to that chart, 
There's three feasts that are considered pilgrimage feasts. And in those pilgrimage feasts, they are ones that within a certain distance, they would require the Jewish men within that distance to travel to Jerusalem to observe those feasts. It would be required. Now, that's an important thing to remember because guess what? We see Jesus says, my time's not yet to to do that. I'm not going to go just yet. But he is going to go because he has to fulfill everything perfectly. So he is going to fulfill the law and fulfill that requirement that takes place. So the three that they would be required would be Passover, which is the recalling the deliverance of the Egyptians from Egypt. The other that they would have to do would be Pentecost. And when we look at that, that's the bringing of the harvest, uh, the wheat harvest. And then the Feast of Tabernacles, which is Israel's wilderness journey and God's providing in the midst of that. So it's, it's the Feast of Tabernacles and an interesting thing that we can't not acknowledge while we're looking at that. It's also called the Feast of Booths. It's also called uh, Sukkot. And this year, it was September 29th to October 7th. So I just bring that up to remind us that the attack on Israel from Hamas was on the final day of this feast, which is to be a Sabbath day. And the attack took place right then and there. And it's a reminder for us, minor detour from the text, pray for Israel, pray for salvation on both sides, pray for the hostages, pray for the families, pray for those that have been released, the hostages, and they're, what they are going through for that healing process. We can't stop being in prayer. But as we are looking at the Feast of Tabernacles today, it's a concrete, tangible reference that we know of in our culture right now with the attack. That's what it was of Hamas on Israel. Now, if we turn to Leviticus 23, we're going to look at the passage of Scripture that gives us the information on the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is the last of all the feasts that are mentioned. It's the seventh one mentioned in here. It's the first mention that we're looking at here of this feast in Scripture. And we read in verse 33. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles, for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, a day of rest, a Sabbath, worship and rest. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day, you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord, which shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offering, everything on its day. So specific offerings all taking place. Besides the Sabbath of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all your vows, and besides all your free will offerings which you give to the Lord. So there are set things, and then there would be personal offerings, personal vows, personal commitments to the Lord. Also, on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you've gathered in the first fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. And this is where we're going to get to how they have the Sukkots, which are the booths that they built. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month, 
And now with all those palms, those leaves that are gathered, verse 42, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. So with that, the feast, there's four spring feasts, there's three fall feasts, and when we were looking at the chart with the different feasts, there's something to point out that's interesting. The Passover, because all of the feasts that take place point to Jesus. The Passover points to Jesus as the lamb, that sacrificial lamb, and guess what? He's crucified on the Passover. The unleavened feast points to Jesus' burial after the sinless sacrifice on the cross, and that is when he was buried. The first fruits that's two days into Passover, that feast, and it's Jesus' resurrection, and he rose on that day. The Pentecost points to the church being found the harvest of souls. It was the harvest of wheat, but it points to the harvest of souls within the church time. And then as we keep going, we see then the Day of Atonement, the trumpets, the tabernacles. The trumpets points to the sound of the trumpet we will hear, the rapture. When we look at the atonement, what that points to, yes, Jesus' perfect sacrifice, sinless, perfect sacrifice, but also points to the affliction and salvation in the great tribulation of Israel. And then when we look at the tabernacles, which is the feast that's taking place today, it points to the millennial rest and comfort of God for Israel and all of God's peoples. So it's important when we look at this because there's meaning behind each bit. And it's a piece where we can't say, you don't need the Old Testament. Just read Feast of Tabernacles and keep going on. No, you need to actually study the Old Testament because there's meaning that then brings to light prophecy fulfilled through Jesus Christ, which then makes us have even more fire and truthful hope for the prophecies yet to come, right? Now, they would live in, they'd create these shelters, which were Sukkots. And I just have a few pictures of different ones so you can kind of get an idea what it would look like. There's one. We've got another We've got another one. This is the idea of building one. Maybe for potluck and prayer, we'll go find branches and build Sukkots. Anybody down? No? Okay. And then uh, this is just an artist rendition just to kind of give, give that visual. So again, these booths would be built. They would dwell in them. That's where they would be. The temple would be illuminated during this time by large candlesticks. And those large candlesticks would be reminding them of the pillar of fire that God provided to them in the wilderness. The priests themselves would carry water from the pool of Siloam and pour it out of a golden vessel to remind the Jewish people of the miraculous provision that God provided with water from the rock in the wilderness. We see in the Feast of Tabernacles, God wants us to remember. He gives ordinances. He gives things to be done so that we remember. Today, we're doing one of them, communion. We do communion to remember Jesus on the cross. And when we look at these, we should also, for yourself, memorialize your walk with the Lord. I've said that before, memorialize it so you have a way to track the different blessings, the different things he has done. Now, if we think about the Feast of Tabernacles, they're remembering everything he did in the wilderness. They're celebrating. It's very exciting. But I want to go to the root of that time. Recall 400 years in captivity under the Egyptians. God ordains and uses Moses to bring them into freedom 
And when they are go, they have that two-year period where they get the law of Moses, they get the law of God. God gives the law through Moses, and he's giving them a time to remind them, rely on me, trust me, rely on me, trust me. Recurring theme from God to his people. But they go to Kadesh Barnea, they send the spies, they see, they've been told now, rely, trust, rely, trust. And what do they do? They don't. The perspective shifts. They don't focus on that. They're faithless, and they go to do their own thing. Yet, we see in the 38 years that follows, God remains faithful in providing. That's what they're looking at. But there's unbelief within them to trust God when they get the report. There's unbelief. They're not able to. And it should remind us of 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he reminds faithful. He cannot deny himself. We serve a faithful God. Even when we waver, even when we struggle, we serve a God who's faithful. He can't deny himself. In chaos, in stress, in worry, in complication, we often forget to trust God. We forget to live in that trust. We forget to walk by faith. But our inability to trust doesn't change God's faithfulness. Now, it's in the midst of this feast, recalling God's faithfulness to their unbelief, we get an anchor that points to so many perspectives of unbelief on our mighty king. And we see what occurs to those who do believe he's good, but they're filled with fear of man rather than reverent awe of God. They trust in man's power rather than what we saw in Luke 12, trusting in God, trusting in the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus has to attend this feast, as we know, but he's not going to go about getting there the way his brothers tell him to. So now we go to verse 3. That was all just to set the context of the Feast of Tabernacles. My Long Island came out, Tabernacles. Verse 3, his brothers said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. So first we see his brothers. We have to address one thing when we look at those two words, his brothers. For any former Catholics in the room, for anyone visiting that may be Catholic and you're just coming here to check out Calvary Chapel of Chapel Hill, I want to tell you something. Mary is not a perpetual virgin. She is not a perpetual virgin. If we turn to Matthew 13, verse 55, and it'll be up on the screen if you don't want to go there quickly. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Were then, did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. We've looked at this before, but Mary had other children. So when we see here his brothers, these are his half-brothers that are there. And then they come to him because they're seeing him there. They're like, the feast is going. Everybody's traveling. You're not going. Well, listen, remember, they would know what took place. What did we see six months prior? The multitude. Many walked away. So they're seeing this opportunity like, okay, if you're really Jesus, if you really are who you are, go from here. Go down there and do something big. Do something wild. Prove who you are so then you'll get more followers. Use the platform of Jerusalem to just be like, look at how mighty and powerful I am. Prove that you're the Messiah. If you really are, then you would go and you would do something big at that time right there. 
but they don't believe he is Messiah. So they say this, and what we see here is that first perspective, familiar unbelief. Because think about his half-brothers, 30 years before he starts his ministry, they're with him day in and day out. They know him. They're familiar with him. They're aware of him. And they would also see the miracles that take place. And with the miracles, guess what? They would not have belief. They would say, okay, those miracles are happening, but you're not the Messiah. They wouldn't believe that. So in that, we see familiar unbelief. And familiar unbelief can happen in different places. It can hit even ourselves. It can hit the witness with our families where you get saved and you're trying to share and it's like, I, I, I believe in Jesus. I'm like, no, you don't. You're still the same stoner that you were. No, you're not. Like, you haven't changed. Nothing's different. Or, well, if you really are, then how come you still do dot, dot, dot? Or how come you can't dot, dot, dot? It can also hit someone who just grows up in the church. They know enough, but they never actually have a relationship. When we look at what they're saying here, they're striking similar to Matthew 4 where Satan tells Jesus, turn the stones to bread, lust of the flesh. Do it. Take control. Don't obey God's sovereignty and timing. Do it yourself. And that's prideful sin keeping one from belief. Now we have the full word of God, so we know in Acts 1.14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. We know and we see in scripture after the resurrection, only after the resurrection, they come to faith. So as we're looking at that familiar unbelief, it should be a charge and reminder to us, pray for those that you know that are familiar with Christ, but don't have that relationship. They don't truly know him as Messiah. Jesus' response to them, verse six. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. His time has not yet come because he is in obedience and submission to God the Father. Their time is always ready because they are not in obedience and submission to God the Father. So they just call the shots. They do what they want as they would like to do as they please. We have to realize Jesus is pointing an important reminder here. It's in the Father's will for him to go to the Feast of Tabernacles. It's just not the timing and way that they're saying to go. And that's a reminder to us. There can be things that are in God's will for us, for our lives. But are you yielded to his timing? Are you yielded to the way he wants to have it done? Again, waiting on the Lord. Psalm 25, 26 that we looked at overlays at the same time as we're seeing that in this passage. Then he goes on to say, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that, it wor- that its works are evil. The world cannot hate you, he tells them, because guess what? They're of the world. The world can't hate you because you just go along with the world. But the world hates me, Jesus says, because at this moment, Jesus has come and he's confronting sin. And that's a reminder for us when we present the word of God, we can't be surprised if somebody gets angry or frustrated. Or, that's so dot, dot, dot. Because guess what? That's going to happen because you're confronting evil. The word of God confronts sin. Then verse 8. You go up to this feast. 
I am not yet going up to this feast. Now, it's clear to point here, when you look at manuscripts, some of the older manuscripts say not yet. Some of the manuscripts that come after say not going, and it goes back and forth. This isn't a time to say, well, wait, he says that he's not yet going, but then he does go, or he says he's not going, but then he is going. He's lying. No. The word in Greek is pointing to an opportune time. So he's saying, I'm not yet going because he's not going to go with the big crowds. And we see later on in this passage, he goes when he can go in private because it's not time to have the focus of the religious leaders coming to try to figure out, there he is, let's take him. It's not that time. The time has not yet come. But when, uh, then we go on, verse 9. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. So again, a lesson for us, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. He knows God's sovereignty, but we have a responsibility, and Jesus demonstrates it here, doesn't take the bait of his brothers. He obeys God's sovereignty. He waits for his timing. He waits for his time and way. Then verse 10. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. He obeys God's way. He's going secretly. He's going cautiously. Again, look at what he said in Luke 12. This isn't out of fear. This is out of making sure it's the timing that the Lord wants. Then we see in verse 11. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? They want the control. Remember, these, the Jews here are the religious leaders. They have authority over all of the people. When they're saying, where is he? They are seeking. He's got to go. He's in the way. He's in the way of us having control, being the ones in charge of these people. The religious leaders make it clear. You talk about Jesus, you're going to have issues. You're not going to be in the synagogue. You don't mention that man. You don't talk about him. Where is he? Here we see the second perspective on Jesus, controlling rejection. Controlling rejection, which comes from pride, pride of life, because they want to be the ones to dictate how everything goes. So that rejection comes from that need, control. They can't allow the pride of control, the pride of being the rulers and in charge to be surrendered to a sovereign God. Then we go on. And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he is good. Others said no. On the contrary, he deceives the people. However... No one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. So we see there's complaining among the people. And again, kind of timeless with people. Does anybody here, has anybody here ever complained? People complain. That's what goes on. Now within this bit of complaining, there's discussion taking place, but it's always in private. It's not open because they're, they're fearing the religious leaders more. So some say he is good. But they don't speak up publicly. That's where I see fear-filled faith. He's good. God is good. But if you ask me to talk about it in the midst of persecution or where my life might be in danger, no, we're not going to say that out loud. He's good, though. Then we see from others, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. Faithless rejection. Because to see Jesus as a deceiver, there's no faith in him, there's no hope in him, lust of the eyes, I'm good on my own, I'm going to do what I want to do, no one's going to tell me what to do. So again, in the midst of a feast recalling all that God did in a time of unbelief, we see in these short verses four perspectives that hit unbelief. 
That familiar unbelief of his brothers rooted in the desire to just be able to say, we know it all, we have it. Lust of the flesh, do a big work. Prove who you are. We see the controlling rejection of the religious leader seeking to kill him, rooted in the pride of life. We have the approval. We have most. We're alpha, not you. We see faith-filled fear. The one who believes in Jesus but fears man. Is there any of that in you? Do you believe but fear? America brings in Christian persecution. You talk about Jesus, you're done. Do you have the courage in that time to still proclaim Yeshua, Mashiach, Jesus, he is Messiah? I will stay steadfast. Or do you say, you know what? As a family, we no longer talk about Jesus outside of this house. We don't talk about Jesus outside of this house. And you could say, well, what are you saying? You want us to put our lives at danger? He died on the cross for you. He gave his life for you. We have eternity with him. If persecution came, if we go through another edict again where churches can't gather, nope, we're gathering, doors will be open, come on in. Would you still proclaim Christ? Would you believe in the Holy Spirit to fill you as Stephen the martyr did? Would you believe the words of Luke 12 to fear God alone? And would you trust the Holy Spirit to give you the words to say in that moment? No, I love Jesus. Would you trust? And in it, we have to also really examine the relationship with the Holy Spirit. This is also the passage where later on we're going to be reminded about the rivers of living water flowing from our heart, the Holy Spirit. But do you actually commune with the Holy Spirit? Because if there's no communion, nothing's going to flow. And the other we see faithless rejection of those who see Jesus as a deceiver. How could he be that good? Rooted in the lust of the eyes. You see that? No, I'm going to see what I see. I'm going to do what I want to do. You go there, I'm doing me. He's a deceiver. So what do we glean from all of this? We have Communion Sunday. This is a chance to remember all that Jesus has done for us on the cross and then to try to put it in the action where we're going to do this in remembrance of him. It's a reminder of eternal salvation. It's a reminder of the eternal hope that we have and a reminder, search your heart for unbelief. And also, search a deeper communion with his spirit. Do you pray, Holy Spirit, fill me afresh. Holy Spirit, give me your wisdom. Teach me the word of God. Do you pray that? Charge, one. How is your faith and belief in Christ alone? How is your faith and belief in Christ alone. Is there any familiar unbelief where you're kind of, if you think about your relationship with Jesus, yeah, you're here right now, but during the week, you're kind of just familiar with him. This kind of stays wherever you put it in your home. Maybe you put it in the kitchen. Many people make, it looks nice on the bookshelf, but I'm not really gonna, I don't have time to open it. I'm really busy. I'm really busy. Familiar unbelief. Is there any controlling rejection? I gotta, it's got to be my way. 
I, I, no, I, 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 this is how it's got to be. Or are you surrendered? Is there any fear-filled faith? I'm worried what so-and-so is going to think. What will so-and-so say? How will so-and-so react? Or is it just God alone and trusting in him alone? Is there any faithless rejection? And those can creep in. It doesn't have to be something big. It can creep in so easily. But if we remain humble, we remember that we never actually arrive. We're never perfect. And we have to continually say, Father, search my heart. Try me. Know if there's any anxieties in me. So how is your faith and belief in Christ alone? That's one. Two, do you surrender to God's sovereignty and accept your responsibility to obey his timing and his will together as one? Because it's not separating them. We do a good job separating them sometimes. They'll say, well, I'm not going to go with the timing, but I'll do it the way he wants. I'm just going to do it now because I have an hour free, so I'm doing it now. Do you surrender to God's sovereignty and accept your responsibility to obey his timing, his will as one? And three, and we've talked about this a little bit, are you communing with his Holy Spirit enough in his word? Are you truly communing? Are you praying, fill me afresh? Because what we have to realize, persecution could come. Are you ready to actually face it? Are you ready to stand in the midst of it? And if we look at our culture, it's coming. But the question is, are you ready to actually do that? How is your eternal perspective? How's your eternal perspective? Because that's that laser beam focus on eternity with him, that's what helps us keep running the race with endurance. You can get Knox Calvary Chapel people. They're always talking about the end times. Yes, we are, because you need to be ready. And being ready is actually preparing your heart, mind, and soul to be surrendered to him, to be in his word, to be filled with his spirit, to live his way, that you are ready and you are sharing and you are doing the work of a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But without the Holy Spirit, it's not going to happen. Do you let the rivers of living water flow from your heart or is the Holy Spirit someone that you've over-intellectualized and put in a nice, neat bow that you don't have to touch? And I think that's a grievous sin happening in so many churches today. They either abuse the Holy Spirit or they ignore the Holy Spirit altogether. Yet that's the gift Jesus gives. As though we need another gift after salvation. We have that gift. So the third part of this charge, are you communing with his Holy Spirit enough in his word? Open the word of God this week and say, Holy Spirit, fill me afresh. Teach me the word of God. Show me what the word of God has for me today. So we're going to now prepare to do communion. And it's something we do to remember our King. Remember his body broken for us. Remember his blood poured out. And the way we do communion, that reminder, if you know that Jesus is your savior, he's in your heart, mind, and soul, he's your king, the table is open. If you don't have that relationship with Jesus, hold. Because you're not doing it in remembrance of him because you don't know him. 
But let's talk. Come to know him. Maybe this is the day where you surrender and say, Jesus, I need you. I'm all yours. With communion, the way we do it here for anybody who's visiting first, we'll open up, there'll be worship, and take some time to pray, and you come get the elements, and take it as a family in your own time. So you take time to pray with one another, and commune with one another, or pray to the Lord yourself, whatever you're going to do. But before you come to the table, and I've said this before, take time to pray. Don't just make it about, okay, music starts, okay, he's been playing for about 10 seconds, who's going to go first? I'll just go, we got to get the... For the potluck. No, brothers and sisters, take time to pray. And if there's something between you and another brother or sister or somebody here, go in the fellowship hall, talk it out, and pray together. Be the church. Don't hide. Actually have the conversations. We're in a culture where everything is trying to divide, divide, divide. There is one equalizer, there's one unifier. Jesus Christ gave his body, gave his blood. We're forgiven. We're new creations in him. His Holy Spirit dwells in us. And we get to live for his glory. We get to commune with him. He forgives us time and time again. So when you do this in remembrance of him, empty yourself that you truly do this in remembrance with a pure, clean heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for your example, Lord, of being in obedience to God's sovereignty and resting and taking that responsibility of obeying. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every single one of us, Lord, as we prepare to come to the table, Lord, search our hearts. Help us to lay sins aside. Help us to repent to you anything that we need to. Help us to talk to that family member, that wife, husband, whatever, Lord, that we could go in one accord and clean to your table, remembering your sacrifice. Thank you for your body broken for us. Thank you for your blood shed. Nothing but the blood of Christ can wash us clean. And you poured it all out for us. And you gave us your spirit. And you promised to come again. And we're with you forever. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Yeah,
Come 
Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God, that all things truly are made new in your presence, Lord. We're new creations. Thank you, Father. Lord, help us to not forget that. Help us to look to you, Lord. Help us to worship you, Lord. Help us to glorify you. Help us to surrender and die to self daily, Lord. And run the race for your glory, Lord. And that we would run, Lord, walking in the Spirit, holding your hand where you would lead. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we sing that chorus one time? Just the chorus of that. Here in your prayer.